Lots are being driven by U.S. budgets. But again, keep in mind that this is Space Race 2.0 and it's a relay race and there are corporate entities and there are a lot of other nations interested. This isn't a us versus them. And so I, I think, yeah, when we look at the lunar economy, that zone is opening up. From the Defense and Aerospace Report, this is The Downlink, a podcast about the intersection of space, the space business, and defense. Not just what's over the horizon, but what's happening above it. I'm your host, Laura Winter. Hello, Downlink listeners. We've just finished the third quarter, and there's a lot to talk about in space business. But first, looking at national economic indicators, it's a weird mixed bag. The number one signal that a recession is coming, an inverted bond yield curve, remains inverted. But Friday's job report revealed that employers added 336,000 jobs last month. That's nearly double what economists had predicted. Analysts are also saying that the jobs report may become one of a number of reasons the Federal Reserve Board may again raise interest rates when it meets at the end of this month. And higher interest rates cause investors to, well, put their cash into bonds instead of stocks or into venture capital deals. These points are important to the space sector because it and its investors are particularly vulnerable to macroeconomic trends. And that vulnerability is due to the fact that the space sector is, well, less developed and depends on other economic sectors such as energy and chemicals. Nevertheless, there is a belief among space-focused financial analysts that investment in the space sector has begun to pick up. And according to the Space Foundation, the value of the global space economy will hit the $800 billion mark in five years. And on the same day as that jobs report, there were two interesting developments. First, Virgin Galactic, which has seen its stock price drop by more than 68% in 12 months, is proving that it's soldiering on. It sent its fifth group of space tourists up to suborbital space in as many months. And Jeff Bezos's Amazon launched two prototype satellites on an Atlas V rocket. Notably, that's not a launch vehicle owned by his space launch company, Blue Origin. But these two prototypes are the first of the Project Kuiper constellation, which Bezos anticipates will consist of 3,200 low-Earth orbit space-based internet service satellites and compete with SpaceX's Starlink and UTELSAT OneWeb. So to talk about the third quarter and what to expect from now through the end of the year, we have Chris Quilty and George Pullen. Here's our conversation. Hello, Chris and George. Welcome back and thank you for joining me today. Thanks, Laura. Thanks, Laura. It's great to be back. Now, before we start talking about uh, what's happened in the third quarter and what's ahead, let's do a quick round of introductions. And Chris, you should always start. Oh, well, thank you, Laura. Um, I'm the only one without a cold, but I did have a frog in my throat. Um, So my background, I was a uh, sell-side research stock analyst for 20 years, writing uh, financial research on the space industry. Uh, started Quilty Space about seven years ago, and we are a uh, integrated boutique of folks that uh, are all about the business of space. 
And George, you're next, but please don't forget to explain just what the Fifth Industrial Revolution is all about for those (laughs) who are new. Sure. So my name is George Pullen. I'm chief economist of Milky Way Economy. We are a Fifth Industrial Revolution think tank and boutique investment firm. Uh, We also provide consulting and education services. Um, I've been a economics um, teacher, writer, and um, all around just economics geek, I'd say, for over two decades now. Most of my time has been spent around alternative markets and markets that don't have all of the established market structures and parameters that folks are generally used to when they think about, for example, what's listed on the S&P 500. And so for those markets, that's where I live and breathe. Um, Before coming to space about five years ago, I was most recently involved with the uh, blockchain space. Uh, Before that, uh, more to do with Uh, derivatives and commodities and swaps, and before that, uh, energy, alternative energy, and even some metals trading. Okay. Well, then let's begin with what may seem like a softball. That probably isn't. And that is a broad take on the state of the economy in general. According to most recent numbers from the U.S. Bureau of Economic Analysis, real gross domestic product, or GDP, increased at an annual rate of 2.1% in the second quarter of 2023, and personal income increased 0.4% at a monthly rate in August. And the Census Bureau's 18 economic indicators are mixed, but most are pointing north. So, George, these are not signs of a recession, but we still have an inverted yield curve. In fact, I think we've had an inverted yield curve for more than a year now. First, take a moment to explain what an inverted yield curve is and what most economists believe it means, and then what is going on now, because it seems like the economy is defying Campbell Harvey's thesis here. Yes, so I'm a big fan of uh, Professor Harvey. He did a wonderful analysis um, that went into how when interest rates on long-term bonds are lower than the interest rates on short-term bonds, we have what's called a inverted yield curve. Now, his actual paper went to some specific tenors, um, tested it out, and it is held and successfully predicted every recession, I just said the R word, Every recession we've had um, since his publication of the paper and based on all the test data he had before that. So, um, yes, in terms of a measure of predictability and a powerful forecasting tool, the inverted yield curve has uh, stood the test of time. Now, some people are saying that this time it's different. But as an economist, I have a really hard time when people tell me this time it's different unless they can point to some hard economic or market structure reasons why it would be different this time. So I'm still putting my money on the inverted yield curve predicting a recession in the coming 12 months. Now, whether it is a big or little recession, that will yet to be seen. Um, That might be why there's so much talk right now about the indicator not having the strength it once did. But we'll know more in 2024 if we have two quarters in a row of negative growth, i.e. the definition of a recession. Just to swing back, though, you were saying that you thought that this thesis would hold. 
unless there was some sort of other market indicator or market structural change or something like that, but COVID-19, which is what I'm suffering from at this very moment, which is why I've got a frog in my throat, but the pandemic was a pretty big event, wasn't it? Would that not count? Um, so when I talk about, so when economists talk, not just me, but when economists in general talk about structural changes, we're talking about something that has long lasting effects on, generally speaking, where uh, supply and demand signals would match in an economy. And so while you could see the COVID-19 pandemic being a shock and having a shock variable effect on the economy, I do believe that the overall market structures haven't changed and that we will have a return to, I hate to use the word normal, it's overused, but we we will have a return to normal. If all that is true, then that also means that our indicators of what is normal and when a recession may or may not come also remain true. And so that's why I still put my uh, eggs in the Professor Harvey basket. Understood. And Chris, broadly speaking, how did the space equity market fare in the third quarter? What are the space investment trends? Anything new? Yeah, I think uh, so. There's been some public company activity. Certainly, um, <clears throat> what happened with Viasat uh, w- was both unfortunate uh, with the loss of their Viasat three and the Inmarsat F- uh, I6F2 satellite. Um, you know that was certainly the the headliner. Uh, you also had a, a unexpected take under of Echo Star by Dish. Uh, there's a different storyline to that. But you know, I think thematically, one of the trends that that is still top of mind is what's happening in the venture capital, uh, private equity side of the market, because really, as a source of capital, um, you know, the public markets haven't been open. You know, certainly for exits or <clears throat> you know valuation capital raising, so uh, it's still kind of ugly in in VC land. Uh, I think about. of the unicorns out there have yet corrected uh, on the downside. I just saw a statistic that, you know, the IRR for, um, you know, the industry was like negative 17%. And what's the IRR for those Uh, of us who don't know? Internal rate of return uh, that that investors are realizing. Now that changes, you know, from quarter to quarter, but it was the worst performance in 10 years. So, I mean, just to give you a sense of where the market is now, it, it's a little bit tenuous. Uh, if the public markets recover, you'll see the same in the venture market. And, and the reason I mention that is because so much of the startup activity that is driving demand for components and launch and everything else is really based on this uh, unproven venture funding source. And there seem to be fewer organizations and also fewer uh startups uh, in the past year, at least from what I've been reading out there? Um, well, you know, we we track the numbers. I'd have to go back and look. Uh, I don't think there's been a really big fall off, uh, at least in the space sector, in either the number of financing or or even, you know, the, the aggregate totals. I mean, it's down. Uh, I, I should say, we've seen the funding fall off by over half, you know, from 22, 21 to 22, uh, we're trending down maybe teens through the, the first uh, two to three quarters of this year. Um, so we seem to be near the bottom, uh, but the, there's not yet a sign of an upturn. 
Now, this is for both of you. What were the biggest developments for either the space economy, space business activity, or space investment this past quarter? And George, why don't you start that one? Sure. I think one of the biggest things that we saw in Q3 um, is many companies that had gone through some of their uh, initial rounds of funding, what I will call in the pre-pandemic period, returned to the markets for either Series C or Series D funding. And just to define those terms, these are later stages of funding for existing businesses. So that would mean a company that had previously had their Series A or B, um, they were able to pull through the pandemic and have contracts, have additional technology developments. But we saw many of them now return to the markets in the last quarter seeking Series C and Series D funding. And we did see quite a pause in those activities. And so um, just to kind of put it into perspective, one of the things that we saw was in terms of venture money, um, there was somewhere in the neighborhood of, you know, $8 billion of investment activity from venture firms in uh, 2022. But if you compare that to, you know, 2019, 21, et cetera, um, those numbers were closer to the 25 to 50 billion range. So we saw quite a bit of pullback. And then what we've seen in the last quarter is a return to some venture activity. Um, I do think that people are looking at the same thing I am, which is the inverted yield curve that we already talked about. And I think that is making them pause on some deals, but we are seeing deal flow picking up again, thankfully. And Chris? I'll, I'll go back to the uh, the Viasat situation. I, I think there are really profound impl- implications for the industry as a whole. Explain you what know, happened with Viasat. So Viasat has spent the better part of the past seven years building the world's most powerful high-throughput geo satellite. So think of them as really the the leading the old-school geo camp uh, arguing that you know geo is superior to leo both in you know cost per bid and and per, you know every performance characteristic except latency um, and against that they've been fighting this investment tied into leo and hybrid constellations whether it's spacex or amazon or ses with their empower so um, the viasat 3 satellite which was launched earlier this year was literally the product of seven years of work for them. Uh, obviously, it doesn't typically take that long, but it was uh, delayed by COVID and a first-of-a-kind satellite. But the satellite failed shortly after launch. So the reason this is important, obviously important for Viasat, but you know the folks who are pushing the non-geo camp, you know, part of their argument is, hey, we're a lot more resilient. And a lot more flexible. I mean, individual satellites can fail. You can add more for more capacity. Whereas this was a binary event, right? Uh, It went from a one to a zero in an instant. And I don't think it'll take them seven years. I think if they they get humping and start on the next Viasat 3 to replace it, maybe they can do it in three years. But that's three years where they don't have capacity, any capacity, and that's also uh, a write-down from just the loss of the satellite, unless they're insured, right? Uh, they were partially insured for the cost of the satellite, but it, it was a uh, very real capital loss to them, even with the insurance. 
If, if I could add one other thing that I think everyone was watching um, in Q3, it was Varda Space Industries, right? So oh. Varda had, yeah, I see Chris, I see you smiling. Um, Varda had their launch. It has a interesting business model. It is all about uh, biotech and it's all about advancing life sciences and the study of uh, medicine and the like in space. Um, and so there was a lot of talk, which I think is fantastic. I'm a big believer that biotech is going to be the killer app of space. And there was a lot of additional talk and attention around that. But unfortunately, we then saw that there were some problems with Varda's paperwork. And now uh, what we saw from Varda space uh, is likely a warning to others, which is um, make sure that when you're trying to do orbital factories, whether they be for biotech or something else, that you have your re-entry paperwork correct, or uh, the Air Force and FAA might not greenlight your return. Ouch. Like, what, did they just not fill it out correctly? Or, I mean, what kind of screw-up was that? Well, well, to be clear, I, I'm guessing how many people have ever filled out that paperwork? No, there you go. I mean, do they have a mentorship program <laughs> to figure it out? Right, uh, right. No, I hope I mean, they post it on the internet. Yeah, I mean, Chris. Chris raises. I mean, Chris raises a good point, and you know, this is also why I think more so than I can remember seeing in previous years. And I'm obviously I do have a bit of a survey bias. I mean, I teach at a law school. Um, I teach some economics, just to be clear, not law. But I will say that I've seen a lot more space lawyers and a lot more interest in space lawyers. And when you have something like this, where um, there is a potential policy paperwork type of violation. Likely that means that uh, that's just additional jobs for space lawyers and that's additional money that companies need to be spending on space law practices. You know, you bring up a really interesting point because, yes, there have been a lot more space lawyers out there. I'm being contacted on LinkedIn by space lawyers uh, trying to get on the show, et cetera, et cetera. And I am going to have a few of them on soon. But is this something that space companies, and I'm not talking the big boys and girls, but startups, I mean, are they actually considering this in their budgeting? And when they're going out, I mean, are, are VCs saying, hey, you know, not only do you, ha- do you have your banking together, which we'd like to have proof of that, but do you actually have your legal side together as well? Is that happening? So... You know, I, I do spend a lot more time on the on the smaller and medium-sized end of the ecosystem uh, com- compared to Chris. Um, I know that he could talk about what probably the larger companies are doing in terms of their exposure to space uh, from a legal point of view and their liabilities there. What I would say is I think smaller and medium-sized companies are becoming keenly aware of these risks. And as they're engaged with their current partners, whether they be VC or larger firms, they're looking to them for the recommendations and they're looking to them for the support when it comes to, you know, their exposure to legal risks and their need for space law services. So yes, it's definitely a consideration. Um, maybe Varda serves as a, as a warning, um, if you will, for other uh, similar companies looking to do innovative things that might need to make sure that they first do their paperwork well. Yeah, so I, w- I was going to use this as an opportunity to 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 make a joke about you know the, the ongoing discussions of moratorium on you know human spaceflight and maybe we should have a moratorium on space lawyers. But um, the reality is, um, you know, I, I, as somebody who's a, a practitioner on the M and A side, and you know, I've been in the investment banking world for a long time. I mean, it makes a huge difference. Uh, there are not a lot of folks out here that understand the industry. 
you know, to be able to have that mix of industry knowledge and, and the M&A capability, or if you're talking about the other legal side with regulatory, you know, I, I know the handful of people in this industry that, you know, that I trust that have a good beat on it. It's probably not, it's not that hard to figure out who they are because it, it's just not a big audience. So uh, I'm a big fan of paying for, for people's value. And I think a, a lot of the firms out here have done a real good job of building practices uh, around the industry, which is a good thing, right? You, you hate to have this be, you know, a third year intern gets the space deal because uh, nobody cares. And I, I would say that's also a trend that we're seeing in other countries as well. Um, you know, I can only speak to the the University of New Hampshire Franklin Pierce program, but I know that we had students coming in for the space economy course from Paraguay, from Costa Rica, from Argentina. So there's there's interest also in other nations, and there's also interest in companies in other nations, making sure that they don't only get their rules right, but also as they're interacting with the U.S. as potential customers or partnerships, that they're getting those legal structures right as well. Wasn't it actually recently at a space lawyer regulation event? I believe there was a lawyer there. Um, family name is Monero, but he said something I thought that was really apropos, which is when you're practicing law and space law very particularly, you're practicing international law that that should be your focus. So I'm not, I mean, I'm not surprised in some ways that you have international students in your courses. I'm just wondering if, if, you know, American companies are actually also seeing it that way as well, that they, that they, it's a very particular kind of lawyer that they're going to need to get their FAA stuff together, as well as the United Nations stuff, as well as other nations that they'll be um, selling their services to. Yeah, yeah, I'll I, just kick in as a point. former Navy guy. There's certainly an element of admiralty law in in what occurs in space. <laughs> very, very much, very much so. I would second that, but only as a Marine that used to ride on your boats. <laughs> <laughs> very cute. All right. So moving on, I want to now turn your attention to the moon few days ago, Euroconsul, which is a Paris-based space strategy consulting and market intelligence firm, it published a really interesting report about investment in space exploration and pointed to lunar exploration as driving what it calls an unprecedented surge in government investment into space exploration and into that sector. Globally, the organization is predicting a $26 billion rise in investment for this year, and that specifically, and now I'm quoting, ambitious lunar missions are projected to boost investment to nearly $33 billion by 2032, a growth trajectory which underscores lunar exploration's pivotal role in shaping the future of space exploration, and that moon exploration is expected to achieve a remarkable 5% 10-year compound annual growth rate, ultimately reaching nearly $17 billion by 2032. We've seen India land on the moon, Russian attempt to land on the moon and fail, Japan just launched a mission to the moon, the Japanese company iSpace attempted a landing and also crashed this year, and we've got two U.S. companies on NASA contracts launching missions to the moon in the fourth quarter. So you guys work with space businesses. 
are we seeing the beginnings of a true lunar economy, albeit one mostly funded by governments? So I I think this is where we say that it is governments that are funding the space economy still, and we shouldn't beat around the bush about that. Um, Regardless of whose number you like for the contributions from venture capitalists over the last uh, decade or so, it usually amounts to anywhere from uh, 10 to uh, maybe as high as 20% of what world governments are putting into the kitty. So yes, uh, U.S. is very interested in the moon, as are many other nations. Um, we've seen India's landing. We've seen the attempt by the Russians to have a landing. Uh, we've seen uh, China now operating for a considerable period of time. Uh, on the far side of the moon. And so all of these activities are national driven activities, but it is something important and something that I, uh, Pete uh, Gerritsen, another uh, frequent guest of yours, Laura, but we we debate often, which is, uh, does the flag follow commerce or does commerce follow the flag? Um, But in either interpretation, what happens is as national interest grows and as nations de-risk infrastructure companies, commercial entities are going to follow either to provide services or to take advantages of agglomerations that will occur as national programs develop footholds in the cislunar economy and on the lunar surface. So yes, huge increase of interest. We also recently saw uh, the DARPA Luna 10 come out. Um, There are whispers that another one might also be coming out shortly. So yes, lots of attention, lots of it being driven by U.S. budgets. But again, keep in mind that this is Space Race 2.0 and it's a relay race and there are corporate entities and there are a lot of other nations interested. This isn't a us versus them. And so I, I think, yeah, when we look at the lunar economy, that zone is opening up. And that's also a good consideration for Space Force because, you know, um, uh, it was, you know, Salty recently said, excuse me, uh, General Saltzman. General Saltzman. Yes, sorry, sorry. Just said recently (laughs) in his public remarks that we will be defending satellites, we will be defending space assets. Those, in my mind, extend well beyond just LEO, which is what we always talk about, but also into the amazing amount of economic potential for the development past LEO, and that is including XGO, Cislunar, and the like. Chris, I saw you nodding in there. Yeah. So what's going on? Um, so I guess I wouldn't have said it in polite company you know, 10 years ago or so, but I'm kind of a fan of the moon. Um and, and I say that for two reasons. Number one, uh, that I think this is a, a legitimate growth market. Number one is because the Chinese are doing it, right? Hence, George's assertion that this will be a government-funded endeavor. And number two is, um, I know at least of select business cases where that you can make money, right? It uh, And funny story, I, I did a, a conference years ago. I can't remember when it was or where it was, but it was a much more civil-focused, civil arena. And there was a guy from that, well, from a, a U.S. space agency that was sitting next to me, and somebody in the audience asked the question. And I really, like, when he asked the question, I didn't have a opinion on it. But the guy says, hey, what's the most interesting commercial activity on the moon. And you know what the response was? 
I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) What the heck? You know, isn't there something interesting up there? But, um, you know, we do know of companies that are getting funded. They've got lunar business models. It's, you know, not cheese. It's uh, data storage. It's, you know, mineral extraction, you know, and based upon lower launch costs and, you know, lower transportation costs and everything else. I mean, eventually people will make money. But in the near term, uh, there is a a whole of government effort to get U.S. Western countries, companies on the moon. Both. To establish the physical presence that establishes, you know, the territory that you, quote unquote, manage, right? Um, And we're seeing that contracts from AFRL and DIU, everything supporting, you know, orbital refueling to, you know, nuclear thermal propulsion, you know, you name it. So... Uh, I do think that government support will be there for quite some time. And on the back end, people will make money on this also. And and there's a, a corollary, right? I mean, the Earth observation industry, you know, think of the, the satellite imagery companies like uh, Maxar and Black Sky and others. That industry has been around for 20 plus years, and it is still 80% government revenues. Um, you know, the, the thesis here is we're going to see huge growth in commercial uh, that that will eventually happen in the EO market. Same's going to happen with the moon. I mean, the moon will be cool up until the point it won't be a sustainable endeavor until the point that people can make money off it. At that point, you don't care whether the government supports it. You just want them to get the hell out of the way. And to defend it. You don't yes. want them to get too far out of the way because you'll still need them to defend your rights to operate freely. And so here's like a follow-up and probably painful question, but I, I, I got to ask it. As George, you said that even now the space economy is mostly underwritten by government contracts. Are we any closer to a commercial space economy that can sustain itself without government investment? I mean, perhaps it will always be underwritten by government because of the importance that it has to nations? I mean, are, are we ever going to see this so that it, it does get to the point, like you just said, that you want the government to get out of the way but protect things? Yeah, I don't think I would use the word always, right? So I do not predict that we will always have governments underwriting and always have governments being the primary investor or carrying two-thirds of the water in the buckets, however you want to phrase it. Because if we expand out, particularly when we start talking about lunar outposts, we start talking about moon, we start talking about asteroids and the like, you start tapping into a amount of resources and an amount of potential production that exceeds that of what any one nation would need, right? So now you become into a place where commercial actors are benefiting their balance sheets by participating. Um, Look at Psych-16 and the mission that uh, we're we're sending now, right? So if you think about that, this is NASA going out to do another survey, right? And to see uh, how much of the 10,000 quadrillion is really there and all these other, you know, ludicrously large numbers. Well, of, oh, of uh, minerals and on, uh, gold uh, on a Psych-16. It's an asteroid. 
Thank uh, you. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> sorry, talking we're, inside. I we thought you were talking about your favorite nightclub again. Yeah. Oh, that's Psych 13. <laughs> Get it right. Um, no, but seriously, so with, with Psych 16, it's been uh, getting a lot of attention I, within the space community uh, for quite some time. And that's because of all the minerals there and all the potentials it has for uh, asteroid mining. And of course, I am not advocating that asteroid mining takes off tomorrow or even takes off this decade. But what I want people to have planted is what the roadmap looks like. So as we extend infrastructure out to the moon, what that does is that necessitates the development of a series of technologies. Some of those technologies are how do we have reliable energy when we operate on the moon? How do we have reliable cargo transport back and forth to the moon for resupply and for resources? How do we set up infrastructure for communications to interact on the moon? How much autonomy do we have when we're on the moon? And by autonomy, I mean robots that like when we're operating there. Each of these four and many others are pieces of infrastructure that as U.S. government funding and the funding of other nations de-risk, commercial enterprise will want to participate because then they can go knowing, well, you already have, like Chris said, you already have this amazing infrastructure for Earth observation. Let's, let's flip the narrative. You, you now have this amazing infrastructure for moon observation. Using that amazing moon observation infrastructure, I want to do a, B, and C for a commercial purpose. You now have an infrastructure for lunar cargo. That lunar cargo infrastructure is being used by Space Force, NASA, and the like. That's fantastic. Well, now I would also like to use that infrastructure for lunar cargo to go out further or to go to the moon for commercial activities. So it's a de-risking period. It's going to be that de-risking period for you know the rest of this decade easily on into the 2030s. But that doesn't mean forever. It means that we're building the rails that commercial enterprise and free markets will be based upon and built upon. And then the government moves into the function it should be, which is de-risking further out and providing security. Chris, do you have anything to add to that? How could anybody possibly add to George's soliloquy? (laughs) All right. This next question then is going to be right up your alley then, Chris. Now, speaking of commercial endeavors, but does Virgin Galactic have a chance of making a real business of space tourism or transportation? What I've been reading from Rich Smith in The Motley Fool is that the burn rate of $125 million a quarter is really tough to square. What are the prospects here, Chris? Um, Okay, so I'll start by saying I do not... Uh, currently model out uh, Virgin Galactic, or for that matter, I haven't I haven't spent a huge amount of time on the uh, the human spaceflight side of things, so uh, I don't have an opinion on the cash burn rate and their their situation. What I would say is, I mean, I, I think it is a real market, right? When when I did my background research on it, you know, are there enough people in the world willing to pay a hundred five hundred thousand dollars for an event like? Wow, yeah, like <laughs> there actually are when you look at the numbers. I mean, I wouldn't have thought so, but you know, and there's a lot of allegories, right? Of of markets that that developed with very expensive high users and then you broaden it over time. Now, what I don't know is, I mean, as much as I'm sure a lot of folks that that have invested in this area in recent years have been disappointed by the rate of progress, 
Um, I actually, because you gave me a, a, a whole hour's heads up that I'm, we might talk about this, I dug back into the internet and I found a report from 2002 where they forecast that by 2021, we would have a, a space tourism market of 60 people, 60 passengers per year, and a $300 million market. Five years later, there wasn't a SPAC bubble then, but in 2007, they, they republished the report and they went from 60 passengers a year to 12,000 and it becoming a billion dollar a year market. Um, and, and I only mention that because, you know, what's old is new again, right? I think there were a lot of rosy forecasts about what was going to happen. Things have, have reset. Um, look, there's a certain uh, volume of certain tempo. It's just the economics of a capital capital intensive business is you need to drive volume through that factory in order to generate the profits. And uh, SpaceX has proven, right? I don't even watch SpaceX launches out my window anymore. They are happening every two days. They're just not cool. Uh, so it can be done, right? There, there's a model of a company doing something very complex with a space vehicle that says you can do it on an almost daily basis. Uh, that will be the challenge uh, for these companies, and it's you know both Blue Origin and uh, and uh, you know our friends at Virgin Galactic. Um, the other thing I would uh, just say is you know there's a different model, which if Starship is successful, and you can fly a hundred people onto orbit for a couple million bucks, you know is what they said the variable cost would be. You know, that's a different experience and maybe a different price point, but also perhaps a challenge to people doing a suborbital flight. So so I have to maybe do some different things here, right? So if, if I think about it... If you were I, the same, George, it would yeah, be so boring. Be boring. Well, so, so here's where I get a little bit of heartburn when it comes to space tourists, right? So the first is I picture the pitch deck... And I know, you know, Virgin Galactic is well past pitch decks, but I, I picture the pitch deck and I think, okay, what's the TAM, right? What's my total addressable market? How big is this thing? And then I think, okay, well, what are you pricing at? Well, if you're pricing at close to a half a million a ticket, um, then you're probably appealing to mostly decamillionaires. Well, how many decamillionaires are there? Well, there's between two and 3,000 of them. Okay, sure. So are all two or 3,000 going to actually fly? No. So that's your SAM, right? That's your serviceable addressable market, right? So the biggest circle is TAM. The next circle is SAM. How much can you actually address? These are the people that would, would actually, you could reach, right? Who'd want to take the flight. And then think of your slide deck. You have your SOM, right? That's your serviceable obtainable market, right? This is who are you going to convert and what kind of resources are going to take to convert those into your to users. And if I think about it and look at what they've done to date, well, what they've done is they've reached about 800 pre-ticket sales. If you've already sold 800 tickets ahead out of a decamillionaire market of two or 3,000, you, you've already sold a lot of tickets to the people who were interested. And so and how at many- the price, And at the price point that, that so, was advertised. Right. Yeah, right. so this we're all agree to disagree because the mark, your base assumption is wrong. It's not decamillionaires. Look at the people who have already, you know, uh, done this experience. It's, you know, friends and family throwing together money for someone that, that they wanted to, you know, it's not, at those prices, it is not out of the reach of millionaires. 
And there's a lot of millionaires. Yeah, I mean, I think I think we might be in the same place, which is as the price comes down, right? So as we see prices go from a half a million down to the order of tens of thousands, I think you would open up a much bigger addressable market. And I think that's when things can get interesting. I just worry that at these prices, I'm not sure if they sell enough tickets. There's that, worry. but it also can only take up six people at a time at the moment. So there's, I mean, there's a restraint, Correct. right? And then there's the actual burn of how much it actually costs to ready a vehicle and, and the whole process, the training, which I know there's not much. I understand that there's passengers, but it's not like, you know, boarding a plane and, you know, the stewardess coming over to you and asking you, are you able and willing to, you know, operate the emergency door, right? I mean, <laughs> this is a little more complicated than that. So, you know, there's a lot more, you know, going into this particular kind of a journey, I'd like to say as 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 courteously as possible. But I just, yeah, I just kind of wonder, is this going to make money? Is, there, is, is the business going to survive long enough to make money? Maybe should be the better question. Yeah. And then that depends on two things, right? The, the company's ability to execute and scale and two, that, uh, you know, the capital markets uh, soften up a little bit here. Mm. Uh, and uh, unfortunately, timing issues, right, mm. of aligning those two things in a way that, that the company, you know, can succeed, uh, it, that isn't necessarily up to you. They control their own fate, but only to the degree that they have the capital to operate. And so lastly, fourth quarter predictions. How are we going to end the year? And I'm going to ask George to answer first to give you a little extra time there, Chris. So George, why don't you start? Sure. My my fourth quarter predictions are that we will continue to see increase in activity from VCs and investors. Uh, we're not anywhere near on track to get back to our uh, pre-pandemic, you know, 2019 levels or even our 20 and 21 levels. But we will see upticks. Um, there's a lot of deals currently in the pipeline. Um, if we think about the average deal size, particularly when we when we when we remove SpaceX's deal uh, in 2022 from the equation, we're really talking about a barbell curve where we have a lot of um, deals on one side for the five to ten million dollar range, and then a lot of deals on the other side of the barbell for thirty to sixty million. And I think that that's what we'll see close out this year, which is a, a flurry of activity and additional um, D rounds that will uh, help companies continue to press forward. Because again, the signal is coming to us that lunar is desirable and that lunar infrastructure is coming and that the government wants to support those technologies and those businesses aiming at lunar infrastructure uh, next year. And so we'll see that investment activity at the end of this year. And Chris, you know, I endeavor to get you in trouble. So uh, predictions. Yeah, the, the, the extra time did me absolutely no good because uh, I still haven't booked my flights for next week. So I, I haven't really given it that much of a thought. I mean, look, macroeconomic aside, uh, I'm still, you know, pretty bullish on on the outlook here over the next year or two years. You've got launch trends working in your favor. Uh, pandemic related supply chain issues, you know, have have diminished. You've got, you know, potential big new uh, scaling up with 
uh, Telesat, now that they seem to have come out with a, a solution. Uh, Kuiper is supposed to start launching this week. You know, those are sort of Leo broadband specific, but they, they pull on the supply chain of the entire industry and, and, you know, the launch sector and everything that supports it. So, um, you know, absent uh, a really ugly black swan event, I think we'll, we'll survive, maybe slow down during any kind of a, a little bit of a minor downturn. But beyond that, I'm, I'm still pretty bullish on the outlook. Chris, George, thank you both so much for your time. Thanks, Laura. Thanks, Laura. That's it for this week. If you like what you're hearing, follow the downlink on Twitter and subscribe to the podcast on your favorite podcast platform. For the latest defense news and analysis, listen to the Daily Defense and Aerospace Report podcast hosted by Vago Maradian and listen to Cavish Ships to hear the latest on what's happening in the maritime domain. I'm Laura Winter, and thank you for listening.